I want to share a few thoughts with you this morning on how we desire to see a move of God in our midst, you know, in our church and fellowship and the nation, the earth and so forth. And we're going to tie this into our series on Joseph uh, when we get to the main concept I'm going to share with. But, but, you know, we're looking for an outpouring of the Spirit of God. We want Him to move because we see the darkness that's arising and we see you know, the apathy and so forth, and we realize, Lord, it's only you pouring out your Spirit on this earth and revealing yourself and your power and your glory that's going to make a difference and draw people's hearts to Him. And, and I think that a verse that summarizes this, that of kind of what we're looking for, is in Psalm 133 and verse 3. And the psalmist is describing you know, the outpouring of the Spirit of God. And he says, It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You know, that's the blessing of God that he wants to come upon us. It, you know, the promise and the blessing of God is heavenly life, because you know, heaven is eternal. And I love how it says the Lord commanded his blessing. God is going to command his blessing to come upon his people. And it, you know, his blessing is everlasting life flowing into our lives and, and through our lives out to others. And as a main thought, we're going to get into with this psalm. Um, but I, I want to point out the delivery system right, of this that, that's brought out here. Is, it says it's the dew. How is his anointing? and his glory delivered to us as saints, it's the dew. It's the little drops from heaven that come down each morning, right? And I think we're familiar with how dew works, right? It just kind of, because of condensation forms on the grass and the animals, sometimes they don't even need, in fact, in Israel, it's not like they had a lot of streams and rivers and lakes they'd go to, but they would drink by eating dew upon the grass. They'd eat the grass and munch that, but there would be dew upon that would give them you know, the drink that they need, the, the water they needed. And, and so there's that delivery system that God wants to give to us. How does his life come? It's as we feed upon the dew morning by morning in his presence or time by time when God wants to visit us and we make that time to visit him. And, and what's interesting is, is you don't need revival for that to take place, do you? Right? That In fact, that kind of indicates it's something even more. It's, it's an intimate and personal relationship that gives us life. In fact, revival is really just to bring people to that place where they can have that relationship of feeding upon the dew on the mountains of Zion, ascending in their spiritual walk to that place where they can feed upon him. And so, you know, we desperately need revival. We're praying for that, right? We have our, our prayer meeting for revival and we, we pray every week and so forth. And we need it in our church, in our city, in our nation, in our fellowship, and so forth. And we believe it's coming. Right? So we're not downplaying that. But, but we also want to remember the purpose. The purpose of revival is to bring many people to the mountains of Zion where they can feed upon the dew of heaven so that we can have that blessing life forevermore. You know, the, the blessing is not revival. The blessing is what propels us to his holy mountain 
and we feed upon His dew. And that's what we so desperately need in, his, in the church. That's what we need in our lives. Right? And so it's those spiritual mountains we're trying to ascend on our journey with Christ and receive life. But it's also for a purpose. right? It's not just that we can taste the, the nice dew, but there's a purpose in that because Christ wants something done in us. Right? There's a, a work to be done. Right? We can feed upon the finest of wheat as Israel did, but they weren't changed. And that was a big problem. But we feed upon Christ and something's done within. As it says in that beautiful verse in Colossians 1.27, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, Christ in me, right? Christ in his people, which is the hope of glory. Or also, Paul said it another way, Galatians 4.19, my little children of whom I travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. Now he's writing to the Galatian church. They're little children in Christ, but he's still saying, I'm praying that Christ is formed in you. And that word, Greek word for formed, it means to be shaped, molded, fashioned. And so the prayer of the Apostle Paul for his spiritual children was, I want Christ to be worked and shaped and molded and fashioned in your heart so that his characteristics are seen and displayed. God wants to stamp his image within us. And the thing we have to remember, too, is we don't need revival for that, do we? Right? It does, that's not, right, that, you know, it's like, well, revival hasn't happened yet, so well, what, nothing I can do about Christ being formed in us. Right? That, that's a mistake to, to get into that. Really, the purpose of revival is to bring us to that. But, and, but God's doing that today. If we come to him and feed upon him and walk in his ways and follow him, He'll work his image into our lives. The Father wants Christ, his, the image of his Son, in us as his bride. And of course, revival just makes it happen faster on a greater scale. Um, you know, we need that breaking forth because it's, it's going to break the strongholds that are binding people, keeping them from coming to Christ and feeding upon him. And so we need revival because it, it kind of removes the spiritual oppression uh, and the opposition and the limitation, and it causes the work of God to happen in many hearts. But the question we have to ask is, are, is, is the purpose of revival taking place in our hearts? Is Christ being formed in us? Are we a bride being made ready? Because that's the whole purpose. That's his desire. I mentioned there were some other aspects I wanted to come, in, come back to um, of the psalm we talked about, Psalm 133, because there's a major theme in that psalm. If you read it, well, we're going to read it too. Uh, but we're going to look at that, and that's the anointing of unity. Right? Psalm 33 talks about the, the anointing of unity that comes down. Um, but just tying this into our, our main series of Joseph, I was just thinking of Joseph how he was in a position where he needed to flow with his brothers who had treated him so, you know, despitefully. Uh, and he had to flow with them. And not, you know, not just 
forgive them and move on. He had to flow with them. They were his family. He had to be with them. He had to be united with them so that the, the lineage would go on and, the, and you know, the seed would go on even though they were in Egypt and they would, be, they would be able to come forth. They had to flow together and be united as a people of God. And somehow they were able to do that. They were able to be preserved as, as the children of God. And, and you know, for a church, somehow we're going to have to come into a level of unity as a body of believers that we have not experienced before. Sometimes that's like the greatest miracle, I think, of the last days. <laughs> How are we as, a, as all of our hundreds and hundreds of denominations, and because we, you know, each denomination believes a different flavor of different things and have different viewpoints and so forth, somehow we're all going to become to unity to be a part of that glorious bride. Well, Psalm 133 talks about that, and it talks about a way that we come to that place. And it doesn't necessarily say we have a change of doctrine, but I, I think that is going to come. We're going to flow into unity in one mind and doctrine and so forth. But yet there's really, I think as we examine it, that we see something has to take place. And it's not in our mind. It's in our hearts. And I wanted to look at that with you. And so to do that, we're going to read Psalm 133. But it only has three verses, so we won't be here all morning. And so Psalm 133 was a, a pilgrim psalm. It was sung as the, excuse me, as the, the pilgrims were go, traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts, right? And back in those days, they didn't have radios or MP3 players, so they would just have a sing-along as they were walking down the road. And probably big groups of them, would, for safety, they would travel and just sing the songs of Zion and the songs of, of the feasts. This was one of those. Um, and they were ascending God's holy mountain to worship. And so they would sing this and says, uh, verse one, it says, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious ointment or that anointing oil that upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, which was the high priest and went down the skirts of his garments, garments. And then we read verse three as the dew of Hermon as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. There the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And so this thought of anointing, the anointing of unity is so important. It's how we as a church are going to flow together, as, a, as the bride of Christ are going to become one, as an army with banners, you know, accomplishing God's will in the earth, having his image put upon us, becoming like the glorious bride. But that means they're flowing together as one. Somehow they're able to get along right, and, and work together. That seems to be our biggest problem in society today, getting along. But there's also something important to understand about this unity and this aspect of unity. It's, it's described as the holy anointing oil that came upon the high priest. Uh, and it was and an oil that he was anointed with ceremonially back in, in the tabernacle of Moses. And it would allow him to enter within the veil Right? And we're, we're called as priests unto God, and we're, the veil has been opened, it's been rent, and we're called to enter in. But 
Yet there's a, a meaning here for us as a church that if we want to go into the veil as a church and his glory to be seen upon us, we need this anointing worked out in our lives. To minister in his most holy place and to minister unto God. And so there's something we can understand about this oil. It was made up of four main ingredients. Uh, and those ingredients were added to the, the big ingredient was olive oil. Right? That speaks of peace. But I wanted to just focus in on these four main ingredients. And we're going to look at them in order of weight. Because they had a different weight uh, based on them. Uh, so the first ingredient was myrrh. And myrrh represents meekness. And this was 500 shekels of weight. Right, so 500 shekels of myrrh. That speaks of meekness being developed in our lives. The second ingredient was cassia. And cassia speaks of humility. And that was also 500 shekels. And so cassia, speaking of humility, was 500 shekels. The third was cinnamon, speaking of goodness, the goodness of God. This was 250 shekels. So the previous ones, we need a double portion of those. Uh, a meekness and humility. We're, we can't come to, humi- to come to unity without a double portion. And we'll look at those in a minute. So cinnamon speaks of goodness, 250. The final was calamus, speaking of gentleness. That was also 250 shekels. And so something we have to understand is that for the anointing of unity to be effective in us and in his church, Something has to take place in our hearts, within us. There has to be a change within. And it's indicated by these ingredients. Now, what's interesting is when you look at some of the other aspects in Scripture, you know, you can look at some of the leaders, the prophets, and they were anointed by God. And some of them were anointed to preach. Um, Others were anointed to lead. Like David, he was anointed and he, he was able to lead uh, well, a group of unruly people in the desert, and somehow he was able to, to lead them to victory, right? I mean, they were kind of a group of misfits, of those in distress, in debt, and those were who were discontent. Probably a, not a, kind of a tough crowd, you could say. But somehow he was anointed to lead them to victory. And it's also tied to one of the things that we'll just consider. But, you know, he was anointed to lead. God empowered him. You know, others were anointed with wisdom, like Solomon, right? He, he was anointed from on high with wisdom, which is basically the ability to know what to do. And the thing is, though, Solomon, even though he was anointed with wisdom, he wasn't changed within, was he? So he had anointing that was effective, but he didn't enter it into it himself. He didn't end well. Samson, he was anointed too, wasn't he? The strongest man who ever lived, you know, other than you could say Christ was the the anointed one without limit. But if we're looking at a human being that was anointed with strength, Samson stands out. You know, he was so anointed he could rip the gates off of a city that were made of heavy wood and and metal, and they were probably tied into the the, uh, stone posts. And he just ripped them off carried the gates from Gaza to Hebron, which is almost 40 miles. He just, I don't know, he just tossed them on his back and just, do-do-do, you know, just walk 40 miles. Walking 40 miles would be hard enough for me. 
But that anointing that came upon him was unimaginable. And I just think, what is God going to do? When Because he said greater works are coming upon the people of God. You know, I think we're going to see the anointing of might and strength come upon the people of God. Who knows what they're going to be anointed to do that for, but just to demonstrate the power of God. But again, with Samson, that anointing only did him so much good because he, he didn't follow God. Christ was not formed in him, so to speak. Right, The laws of God were not written in his heart. And so he was off doing some ungodly things. But what, what I'm trying to point out is there's many anointings that can be effective, but the anointing of unity is different. The only way we are going to flow in the anointing of the Spirit of God that's going to bring us within the veil and transform us into the glorious church is if these four things are established in our hearts, in our lives. That puts the fear of God in me, right? Because, you know, we can, we can read the Word, we can study it, we can preach it, but if we don't live it, if it's not formed in us, and especially in these four characteristics, we are not going to be able to flow in unity. Lord, do it. Do what it takes that I can flow in that, that we can flow in that, flow together. And so this is something we have to understand as a church and look at. And so let's look at, at these four things. We'll look at it quickly because I realize we're, um, that was a long introduction. And so the first one is meekness. Meekness basically means one that's under control. Have you ever met someone that's out of control? <laughs> then you have a picture of what it means to be under control, right? Because you know the opposite. Um, in our experience of pastoring, we've met a few examples of people who are out of control. And sometimes I also wondered they're out of their mind, right? Just because they're like out of control. But, you know, when something can't be controlled, it's kind of worthless, isn't it? It can be have such potential it can have such value, but if you can't control it, it's no good to me. Uh, I remember many years ago, I used to work maintenance and up at Waverly, and I drove the bus, and uh, I was a teacher up in the school. So um, someone donated a small school bus, and it was an upgrade. Right? Normally, we had those 15-passenger vans, and it's kind of hard to get in and out, but it was a school bus with an actual open door you can open, and they could all go in and have their own seat. And it was really great, but there was one problem. It was kind of scary to drive. The, the steering on it was kind of worn out, so to keep it straight, I was like, you know, on the, on the road, and it would, if I was just holding it like this, it would go, whoa, you know, it just veer off because the steering was super loose. Um, I could just barely control it. And this wonderful bus that, that would have been great, um, I think, they, I think they ended up getting rid of it. I'm not sure because it was, just wasn't worth saving and putting all the money in to rebuild the steering. Uh, it, it, you couldn't control it. But that's kind of a picture that we can have wonderful gifts and talents and abilities and you know we could have a wonderful calling and we could even start entering into that. But if we can't come under the control of the Spirit of God... Well, that really limits 
how much, how useful we are to him. And so with meekness and unity, they're, they're very tied together. God wants to prepare and train our, our hearts to, to, so that we're useful to him. We can come under his control. You know, he wants to, sometimes he has to correct us. He has to teach us to listen, to submit, even when we don't understand the situation. You know, I was just thinking, um, the Greek word here for meekness is often used to describe a, a horse that's been tamed, right? That, and, and now it can be ridden. I was just thinking, how often does a horse understand where it's going? Right? No, I don't think any rider really gets up and says, okay, now, horsey, we're going out to this pasture. We're going to stay there for a little bit, and then we're going to come right home, and then there's oats in the stable. Right? No one does that. They just get on that horse, and they say, let's go. Giddy up. And they start galloping off. I don't ride horses a lot, but that's what I imagine they would do. But you see, if we are like that, and it's like, Lord, you're going to have to explain this whole situation to me before I take a step in this direction. Well, that's like expecting the rider to explain the whole story to the horse. It just doesn't work that way. First off, a horse doesn't have the capability to even understand or appreciate you know, the explanation, and, and we have to, that's a part of me. In fact, that's, that brings us to humility next, right? The humility to, to trust and rely. But, but, you know, that meekness, you know, meekness is not weakness. It's actually strength that's controlled. And so we have to come under the training and the control of the Spirit of God to be useful to Him so that we can flow together. Because God's going to bring us into situations with, that's like, well, Lord, this is hard having to deal with so-and-so. But if we can have meekness to realize, well, God's in control and I just need to submit to the situation and work with them. And then you combine the other ingredients and somehow we're able to flow and accomplish God's will. But, you know, the, as we're going to, as we mentioned, the first two ingredients, they're 500 shekels. The other two are 250. We need a double portion of meekness of accepting and allowing God to work in us and through us, especially when it involves working with others. Now, the second ingredient was humility. And I, I just mentioned that thought of humility. Sometimes we need a double portion of it. Well, all the time, really. Because humility is the ability to take the low place. Right? The opposite of humility is pride. Pride says, nope, it's my way or the highway, but humility says, Lord, not my will, but your will. I'm willing to just humble myself under the mighty hand of God, knowing that you're going to exalt me when you choose to do so. You'll lift me up, but I'm just going to trust that if you're lifting other people's up, up and you know I'm, I'm not getting to enter into what I want, but I'm just going to trust in you. I'm going to trust and rest that your way is perfect. And so humility is the, the ability to take the low place, allow others to be exalted, trusting that he's going to lift us up in due time. You know, Peter said something important about this. 1 Peter 5 and verse 5, he says, Likewise, you younger, be submitted to the elder, and all of you subject one to another. But then he kind of gives a, a phrase that, 
gives a little context. He says, be clothed with humility. Be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You know, God can give divine grace to the humble. And Peter uses this phrase, be clothed with humility. And it's actually, it's the only time it's used in scripture, but it's thought to refer to the garment that a slave would wear. And so for a, you know, a regular person in society, you know, you would say, Peter was basically saying, look, how do we come to unity? Put on the garment of a slave, which is the lowest. In fact, Jesus went one higher or one deeper, you could say. He put on the garment of the slave, the very last thing he did, but he put on the garment of the lowest slave, right? There were, high, there were kind of variations of slaves, right? Joseph was a slave, but he was, you know, over Potiphar's house. That was kind of the highest position of a slave. The lowest position was the one who washed the stinky feet. And so what did Jesus do? He put up, wrapped himself in a towel and it would have been taking the feet up and washing them and so forth. That was the garment he put on. And then he said to his disciples, if you've seen me do this as an example, do it to others. And so put on ourselves the garment of a servant. That's the only way we're going to come to unity. You know, some people, you know, they get the idea, well, I'm here to help. I'm putting on the garment of the leader. Everyone's going to listen to me and do what I say. And that's how we're going to come to unity. But, you know, fun funny thing is that when people do that, it brings the opposite, disunity. You're not going to tell me what to do because I've got my garment of a leader on too. And then it becomes a battle royale for who's going to be the leader. But that's what it was with the disciples, right? They all had their garments of, of a leader. No, I'm, I've got my, my garment of a leader. I'm going to be in charge. I'll be the greatest. It wasn't until they saw Christ on the cross that they realized, no, the only way to lead is to die as Christ did and to be a servant to all. And then they flowed together in unity. And so the only way we can flow together is we take, as we take this outlook upon ourselves that we place others before us. You know, the thought that I am going to be greater or I want to be great is not very conductive to unity. And, you know, here's another thought too. Sometimes we think about revival and the glorious church and we think, man, everyone's just going to be like so nice and so perfect. <laughs> but you know what? We're still going to be human. We're still going to have our thought patterns and we're still going to have our idiosyncrasies and we're still going to be who we are you know, God's not going to overwrite our character and, and so forth. In that sense, we'll still be human. What's going to allow us to flow in unity? It's these ingredients operating in our lives. You know, we're still going to be who we are. But somehow, you know, brother so-and-so is going to say something, but we're just going to be able to overlook it. The miracle will take place in our hearts. It's like, oh, that doesn't matter. I'm going to be able to, we're going to flow together and overlook things, and take the low place and flow, as Christ did. All right, two more. We'll get there. These two were 250 shekels, but they're still important. Um, goodness, the goodness of God. John Gill said, 
The glory of God lies in his goodness. The glory of God lies in his goodness. That was a commentator, by the way, John Gill. Um, and so the goodness is the foundation of an essence of who God is. And base, goodness basically means to be without evil. With God, there is no evil. Now, this is hard for us as human beings because essentially we are evil, right? Because of, in the context of our human nature, the nature we were born with, there's no good thing in that. All, the only goodness of mankind comes from God. You know, we were created in his image, but yet true goodness comes from him as we relate to him. But unfortunately, the nature of man is evil. And that's why we can't really trust anyone in our day. I mean, that's why we kind of have to be suspicious, right? It's sad that we have to have a suspicious nature of people, but it's because we know the nature of man is evil. I mean, if someone calls you up on the phone, and I'm sure all of us has had a phone call like this, you know, hey, I want to give you something for free, or I'm going to give you a tremendous deal. I'm going to give you something at 90% off, right? Immediately you're like, okay, what are you selling? And what, you know, what do you ultimately want me to pay to get this amazing deal? Um, you know, right. Because that's how human nature works. Now, obviously, once we get to know people, that can change in how we can relate. We don't have to be suspicious of everyone once we get to know them. But, but yet the heart of man is desperately wicked. And that's where we need to have a change take place. A change in us. But also, I, I want to focus on this with the thought of goodness. We have to have a change in our attitude and outlook with God because God is altogether good. God is altogether good. A large part of us flowing in the goodness of God is recognizing that everything he does in our lives is good. Everything he brings us into, everyone he brings into our lives Right? Every circumstance that we're experiencing that is evil can be turned to good. Right? Of course, we can reference you know, that God can turn all things for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. God can turn all things for good, even when we don't understand it. But the problem is, how, what is our outlook? You know, Israel and Egypt or Israel, when they were delivered from Egypt, they were in the wilderness, they never really grasped this concept. Every time they were in a hard situation, what'd they do? They said, this is an evil situation you've brought us into, Lord. Right? They basically said, Lord, this is not fair. This isn't right. right? I don't agree with this. We sh I shouldn't have to go through this. This is evil. In reality, though, what were they saying? God... You brought us into this situation. This situation is evil. So they were implying, Lord, you are evil for bringing us into this. And that's why they never got out of the wilderness. But, you know, the thing is, is it was actually the goodness of God. He was trying to work in them. He was trying to train them and prepare them and, and allow them to come to that place of trust to become strong in faith, to obey when they didn't understand. And that would have equipped them to defeat all their enemies. 
God was giving them all the things that they needed to fight the giants in the land. Only two people obtained those things in a, in a generation, which is the very sad thing, right? Caleb and Joshua. They obtained what they needed from God in the wilderness. And they were, they were able to enter in. Of course, they had to be delayed, but God supernaturally sustained them to be able to enter in later. You know, gave them 40 years of, of sustaining but it's because they had a different spirit. They responded to the goodness of God in a different way. And that, that's my point in this. We could talk about a lot of the goodness of God, but how are we going to respond to situations? Caleb and Joshua put it this way in Numbers 14.8. He said, if the Lord delights in us, he's going to bring us into the land and give it to us. Just don't rebel against the Lord or fear the people. The Lord is with us. They knew God was good. And God had been with them every step of the journey and was using it for good. And they knew God would lead them in. And so if we learn to recognize the goodness of God in every situation and flow with it, then we'll be able to flow with other people. Even if they're not exactly perfect, right? even if they're not remotely perfect, we'll recognize the goodness of God is still working in every situation, for all things. Last quality in closing, gentleness. I think we even preached on this recently, right? gentleness, and we talked about David. Right? But gentleness has a very large part to do with how well we're going to get along with each other. Right? If someone's not gentle, if they're the opposite of gentle, if they're harsh, that, that's not pleasant to be around with, you know, like someone who's really harsh. And I get, we mentioned David, how he was anointed to lead, and he was able to take a group of probably harsh, grumpy, not happy people, and he was able to lead them to victory. And he gave that testimony of how he was able to, in that beautiful verse, Psalm 18, 35, Lord, you've, and this is, this is him looking back you know, after he became king, looking back at the, at the way God led him to become king. And he said, Lord, you gave me the shield of your salvation. You held me up by your right hand and your gentleness made me great. That just still amazes me to read it. And I've read it a lot of times. It was God's gentleness worked into David. And then David demonstrated that to his unruly people. And as that took place, David became a great leader and a great king. And his people were transformed, right, from that mob to David's mighty men. Imagine that. How, how are we going to become a group of mighty men and women, a mighty army? It's as we learn to relate to each other in gentleness, not harshness, but gentleness. Lord, we, we need that. We need to be able to relate to each other in these ways so that we can flow in unity. And if we want to flow in the anointing of the last days and to become a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, then we have to cry out for these divine qualities to be worked in us. Right? There's going to be many anointings I think we're going to see in the last days. We're going to see anointings of strength, we're going to see anointings of wisdom to make right decisions, right? There's going to be decisions that are very important. 
You know, Lord, should we go here? Right? You know, there's terrorists here or there's earth, earthquakes that happen over here. Lord, what do we do? Where do we go? Where's your provision? We're going to need anointing of wisdom, of strength, right? Anointing to, to lead and, and many different aspects of the anointing. And, and God can put that upon people, even not perfect people. But how is he going to put his anointing of unity? It's only as we're changed in these areas. It's only as these qualities are worked within us. And so as we're looking for a breakthrough and we're crying out to God for mo to move, we have to be honest and examine ourselves and say, Lord, am I ready? Am I ready to flow in unity as you're describing here? We might meet people like in David's mighty army. And God says, that's who you got. That's who you're going to have to flow with. Well, then we, we need the anointing of unity to become a mighty army, to become the bride of Christ. And that, trans, that transformation will take place as we receive a double portion of meekness and humility. We allow God to control us and we humble ourselves under his hand and allow him to work, put, our, put upon ourselves the garment of a servant and we recognize the goodness of God flowing and we learn to flow with his goodness that God is working in every situation and we allow his gentleness to make us great that's how the church is going to become united in the days to come that's how we're going to flow in unity today as well and so Lord do that work and when that takes place his glorious church is going to arise will arise in this place because it will arise within us. Lord, we just thank you. Thank you for your plan and your purpose. Lord, we do just acknowledge your goodness. Lord, we, we declare, Lord, everything you're doing in our midst, in our lives, Lord, in our situation, Lord, it's good because as we follow you, you can turn it for good. Oh God, we just cry out to you. Lord, come and work. Lord, we we want to be the anointed ones. Lord, we want your anointing to flow. But Lord, we, we recognize we have to change. Lord, help us to change in these areas. Lord, even speak to us and lead us, Lord, as we go forward, how we can flow in a greater way in meekness, humility, goodness, and gentleness, we ask. And we just bless you, Lord. Oh, let your anointing come upon us afresh. Lift us up that we can flow together in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.